Hey, this morning, let's start off uh, this morning with a little interaction for the sole purpose of making all the introverts in the room squirm. Amen. Does that sound like fun? Great way to start off this morning. Hey, here's what I want you to do. There is actually a purpose to it, and I promise you it will not be too uh, painful. Uh, But here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn this morning, and I want you to tell the person next to you what you wanted to be when you grew up. And so, so just whatever it was, whatever your dream was, I was going to be this, going to be that. And so uh, just turn to the person next to you. All right, ready? One, two, three, go. Go ahead and have that conversation. All right, now, now that we've done that, uh, let, let's do a little report on our research. Uh, how many of you would just raise your hand and say, I just heard something very weird from my neighbor. Anybody like that this morning? <laughs> like you tried to turn around and go, really? Really? <laughs> How many of you uh, would raise your hand and say, you know, for the most part, or maybe actually literally, I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do when I grew up. How, how many of you can say that? Yeah, just there were a few in this first service would say I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do when I grew up. How many of you would lift your hand and say I'm doing nothing like what I wanted to do when I grew up? How many would you say that? Yeah, quite a few more hands there. So put those hands down. How many of you hate the people who are doing exactly what they wanted? Would you just... Be honest, this right? You're like, what, what happened? Does God not love me? What happened? Right? God's favor's on them. So this morning, uh, I just want to tell you this. It's a little embarrassing and it's a whole lot lame. But when I was in elementary school, I had made a decision in the second grade that when I grew up, I wanted to be a professional map drawer. And so you're like, that explains a lot. Right. Like I, I wanted to be. And so I, so so what happened is this. I had this wonderful teacher uh, in the second grade, uh, Mrs. Williams. And so there was an assignment where we were assigned this country, you know, just like a report, you know, all these things. about. It. But a part of the assignment was you were to draw a map with all the key cities and different things like that. And apparently I had drew the greatest map uh, ever in the history of second grade at Carlisle Elementary School. Because she wrote back and said, this is wonderful. You have such a talent for map drawing. Uh, this, this is a real skill set of yours. This is, you know, just outstanding. And so I was convinced that the call of God in my life was to draw maps. Like I, I didn't realize until later she's just trying to be a good teacher and encourage me, right? And so I got so obsessed with it that, uh, this is really embarrassing. For a period of time, I gave out uh, maps as gifts that I drew. Like who doesn't want to go to that birthday party? Hey, there's $10. Hey, there's a video game. I've got a map. Like, who's, who's the loser that gave that, right? And I just gave my mom and family like a Mother's Day. You know, other kids are doing cards for their mom. I'm drawing my mom a map of Kenya. Amen? I mean, awesome. And so when I grew up, obviously what I wanted to be when I was little was nothing like uh, what God has called me to do. And so uh, let's do a little more research uh, this morning as it relates to, to our vocations. How many of you, uh, at least one point in time, changed your major in college at least once? Major college or tech school or trade school or something like that. You were going to do this. You do this. Change your major at least once, right? How many of you changed your major or your uh, profession, your training, whatever it was, uh, at least twice? Yeah. Anybody three times? Yeah. Four or more, would you just stand up so we can shame you this morning? Would you just do that, right? I was one of those people. I started off. Uh, I started off. I remember having my first visit. You know, I was trying to play basketball somewhere. And so I remember sitting down with one of the coaches. He's like, what do you want to be? He's like, well, I'm, I'm thinking about being a physician. And then I found out that was hard. And so I'm like, I'm not doing that. 
But that required a lot of work, right? A lot of school. And so then I was going to be a school teacher and I was going to teach phys ed. And so uh, then God called me into the ministry. And so, so lots of people have changed their major at least once. How many of you uh, went to a tech school or a trade school or something like that? And whatever it is you were trained in, what you're doing now is nothing like related to that at all. How many of you would say that? Like whatever I was trained for is nothing at all what I'm doing now. Yeah, some of those. How many of you, and I try to say this without bitterness in my heart. How many of you still look back and wonder why in the world did you have to take that one class in college or trade school? It has nothing to do with anything you've ever done the rest of your life. How many of you would just acknowledge that this morning? Yeah, how many of you are still mad about it? I am. Right? Like, Lord, deal with my bitterness. And so, so what, what is the purpose of uh, all of this? Well, this morning, I told you last week, uh, we were starting a little two-week mini-series called Dear Dad. And basically, the, the thesis behind this little mini-series was if I could sit down with every father in America and just say, hey, listen, here's some wisdom from God's Word. And based on my exchange and dealing with families, here are just things I would share. These may not be the only things, but these are two of the top things that I would share with you and uh, would take, uh, you know, encourage you to take note of and I would share with myself as well. And the, for last week, we looked at the idea of the power of spiritual modeling and Particularly the impact, research says, of what happens when a father spiritually models for his children or his grandchildren. And so this week we're going to look at the idea of work. And we're going to look at the relationship between uh, particularly men and their work. And so this morning I've entitled the message, uh, Making Time for What Matters. Uh, this morning. Now, this is a little more of a topical message, which I don't do a lot of, but everything I want to cover this morning was not contained neatly in one little passage. Uh, but to get us started this morning, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look this morning at just verses uh, 15 uh, through 17. So as you're turning there, I, you know, I came across an interesting blog this week, not because the content was like eye-opening or I'd never heard that before, but because some of the way they framed up the content uh, was, was just like what we would frame up in the church. However, it was not written from a Christian perspective. It was not a Christian blog at all. I was just doing some research on work and how people viewed work in our culture. Uh, so, so here's what I said. It said, basically in our culture, there are three ways uh, that people look at work. And so you either find yourself there or if you're in, you're in retirement years. By the way, if you're in retirement years, can you just say, whoop, whoop? Can you just do that? Yeah, right? And so, so, but at some point in time, you probably fell into one of these categories. Or if you're still in your working years, you would fall into these categories. So, so one of the ways people view work in our culture, uh, the first one is just a job. Like, it's just a job. These are the people who see their work uh, as those, you know, they just belt out the song of their heart is everybody's working for the weekend, right? Like the whole focus, they live for breaks and vacations. Uh, their job is simply a means to an end, which is a paycheck. Uh, they need to support their family or, or, or pay their rent. And so this is the ticket they punch to do it. So their job may not be terrible, but it offers very little satisfaction for them. And so some of you, how many of you would raise your hand and say either A, I am or I have worked a job. Anybody ever done that at a point in time? Absolutely. We've all had to do that, right? But some people, uh, this is the second category. Some people just don't look at it as a job. Some people look at it as a career. And the career is derives meaning not from the nature of the work itself. But listen to this. But the gratification that comes from advancing through the ranks and earning promotions and raises. This motivates the careerists to put in extra time uh, to work. Necessar- doesn't necessarily stop uh, when they punch out. However, and listen to this wisdom here. However, once this forward progress of promotion stops, the careerist often becomes unsatisfied and frustrated. It's a good word. 
Now, here, here's what's interesting, because the way they phrased this last one, again, this was a non-Christian perspective, but it's very similar to some of the language that we would talk about in the context of the church. Uh, they said, so some people have jobs, some people have career, but then some people view work as a vocation or even as a calling. As a calling, uh, a vocation or a calling is work you do for its own sake. You almost feel like you do it even if you didn't get paid. The rewards of wages and prestige are peripheral to getting to use one's passion in a satisfying way. Those in a vocation feel that their work has an effect on the greater good and an impact beyond themselves. They believe that their work truly utilizes their unique gifts and talents. This is what they were meant to do. How many of you are, are doing that very thing right now? Like you, you just feel that about yourself. Yeah, so, some of you are doing that. How many of you don't like the people that just feel that right? It's secret, like, ooh, right? And so we all fall in this, or if you don't fall in those categories, you at one point in time, you've had a job, right? My first job was bagging groceries and I hated it. And my second job was working at Wendy's and I hated it. And I didn't find God's call in my life until I started delivering pizzas. I loved it, right? I could drive around all night and people pay to come to their house. How cool was that? And so we've all been there. We've had jobs and we've some of you are in a career. You've had careers. Or, but I hope that some of you are at a place where you say this is God's call in my life or this is a vocation where I can express my passions and gifts and all of those things. And so so this morning, uh, I want to talk to us about the relationship uh, between our work life and, and, our, and, our, uh, and what God thinks about God's perspective uh, on that. Our work life, often uh, women do this. Women identify themselves around their family. And so oftentimes you ask a woman how she's doing. She's like, I'm doing good. And the kids are doing great. And, you know, the husband, and I, you know, this, those kinds. And men often identify themselves around their job. And so how are you doing? Works great. I just got this promotion. I went here to those kinds of things. And the God has wired us up a little different. Now, the challenge uh, in doing that is that for men, particularly work very quickly can become an idol is exactly what can happen uh, in a man's life. And, and when that happens, guess what? We see the fallout. Even though we can't always identify the idol, we see the fallout and their families begin to greatly, greatly uh, suffer. Listen, I've sat uh, with people in their waning moments of life. And on a time or two, I have heard some people express some things along the way of, you know, I wish I wouldn't have spent so much time, uh, you know, at my job. I wish I would have carved out more time for family or you know, travel or what, just whatever the case is. And so it's just uh, reminiscent with one of uh, what I consider cultural's great prophets said many years ago. And by that, I mean, Billy Ray Cyrus. Amen. Billy Ray Cyrus, someone clapped and that makes me nervous, uh, said this in one of his songs. He said, have you ever seen a headstone with these words? If I had only spent more time at work. And so like when I heard that, I thought he is so wise. But then he had a daughter. That's a, that's a whole different series. All right. So, hey, listen. Uh, Genesis chapter two. Let's just begin the text and get our thoughts and conversation started uh, this morning. Just in three verses, Genesis chapter two, verses 15, 16 and 17. So here, here it says, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Some of your translations say to work it uh, in the in verse 15. And Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat. Uh, dying. So, so here, here's what happens. Most of the time when we talk about work and its relation to what Scripture says about that, most of the time what we want is the application. Like, like tell me how to be better at my job. Tell me how to you know, position myself in a certain way. T- tell me these kinds of things, uh, different things. But here's the reality. All those things are good and we'll get to that. But the reality is if you don't have a base of a proper, proper, I don't even know what that is. That's Hebrew for proper. All right. 
a base for a proper theology related to work, then listen, your foundations off and every application you build on that will be leaning a little bit. So, so I want to start off in laying the foundation and forming a biblical theology as it relates to work and what God started. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is simply this, is that work is to be viewed as a vehicle to worship. It's not what we worship, because when it happens, that's when it becomes an idol. But work is to be viewed as a vehicle to worship. You know, what's interesting is that when you think, listen, when God created man and placed him in the garden, you're like, I, I don't know. Like, I've seen pictures in children's book of the Garden of Eden, but I don't totally know what it looks like. But in my mind, it's like the Bahamas or Ruber, or some other place I've never been, but would love to go, right? But like, you would look at that, I just imagine it's incredible. And so you would think that God would say, hey, listen, I'm going to put you in this perfect place, this wonderful place. And I just want you to spend all of your time hanging out and just laying on a hammock and just enjoying yourself and, you know, and and just doing these kinds of things. But the reality is this, one of the very first things God does when he creates Adam and places him in the garden is he gives him a job. He just says, hey, listen, you're just not going to spend all your time laying around and, you know, trying to avoid a couple bad apples. Right. It was a bad preacher joke, by the way. But like, I'm going to give you something to do and you're going to have a job. Now, oftentimes what we have thought and formed a wrong theology of work is that we have to work because of the curse. But like before that, it was just total leisure, just hanging out. God's making provision. Listen, work was from the very beginning a gift from God as a vehicle to worship him through your efforts and through your labor. The, the curse that fell on man was that there would be pain and childbirth and all the women said, yeah, can't even think about it right now. Can't even think. But that for man is that work would become more burdensome, that we would do our labor amongst the thorns and thistles, and by the sweat of our brow we would earn our bread. And so work, work itself wasn't a curse. It's that work became more toilsome in those efforts. And so from the very beginning, God gave this idea of uh, reality. But here's the problem. Is it for far too many of us, we, we think of worship as what happens on Sunday morning in the walls of my church. And how was worship? And we had a worship service and it's all contained in here. And the church for years has kind of uh, promoted that idea, right? But like, like, if you want to worship, you've got to come to the church. And so just have as many uh, meetings as possible. Like if you want to worship, you just need to uh, work in the nursery and attend a small group and go on a mission trip and, and you know, feed the poor and all those kinds of things. Uh, it just that more church activity should facilitate or actually make uh, worship is where it happens. Uh, many years ago, there was a church philosophy. and I've studied church growth a little bit. There used to be a church philosophy. And some of you grew up and participated in this. It was called Three to Thrive. And the thought was, if you wanted to be spiritually thriving, uh, you would attend three worship services a week. You would go to worship on Sunday morning and you go to worship on Sunday night and you go to worship again on Wednesday night because worship only happened in the church. And if you really love Jesus, you would also show up Tuesday night for visitation. And if you want to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven, you'd show up on Saturday morning for bus ministry. Can I get amen? Anybody participate in some of that? Right? Like, 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 like that was the call. That's what you did. Because the ideal, although, and then by the way, somewhere in all that time, you should be witnessing to your neighbors. But here's the problem. They saw you pulling in and out of your driveway ten times a week. They said, I don't want any part of that. I'm busy enough. And you had to be a good father because you want to be a hypocrite, right? So you had to carve out meaningful family time and all those kind of things. And then somewhere amongst all of that, squeezed in there was this little thing that took up a small part of your time called a job. But it wasn't anything. Listen, the only thing the church oftentimes taught about your job that was the only thing they were worried about as relates to scriptures. Don't steal and tithe off your paycheck, right? 
Like that, that was our whole theology uh, related to work. And so the idea was just keep people uh, in the building as much as you do. Keep them so busy they don't have a chance to sin. And so that's what one pastor said. He said uh, the, the philosophy during that time was Mary had a little lamb. It would have been a sheep, but it joined a local church and it died from a lack of sleep. And so, so that was the idea, like get in the building more so you can worship more. Now, here's the reality. When we look at Scripture and realize that worship is our total life and not an event or a service, we have to push that theology to the side and recognize, listen, there are a lot of things I'm engaged in that I can choose to worship God through. And yes, this is important. And yes, this is the overflow of a life of worship. We come together. God commands corporate worship. And so this is a part of that picture. But it's not the whole picture. It's just a facet of it. So when we come together, when we talk about, hey, this should be the overflow And if you don't understand that, then what's going to happen is every week you're going to come in here and you're going to expect us to work it up for you. Like they just need to do this or you walk out and you say, I didn't experience God's presence. And and well, they didn't I didn't I didn't like that song. I didn't like this song or those kinds of things. And so I couldn't experience worship. Listen, if you don't worship throughout your life, if you don't understand what worship is from God's perspective, then we can't work it up for you on a Sunday morning. Listen, if that's all Listen, you're coming to a concert, if that's your view of worship. And so why do I say all that as it relates to we're talking about work and not worship and those kind of things? Because here's what I learned literally. I just learned this this week as I begin to study and break this down. Here's what I'm saying. In verse 15, look what he says again. In verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and to keep it. Some of your translations, some paraphrases uh, say to work in it. The original Hebrew word for tend or work, as in some translations, uh, is the Hebrew word abad. A-B-A-D. And the reason I tell you is because of this. The word abad is the same root word in Hebrew as what's translated in our English Bibles. Worship. Worship. And so if you can read that in the scripture, basically what God was saying, hey, listen, I'm going to put you in in the garden and I'm going to give you the opportunity to worship me through your work and through your through your efforts. And so the word of the reality is this, Adam worshiped God in the garden. It wasn't all those things of just sitting around, lounging around. Uh, verse 15, the, the, the root word, it literally means there, the word abad, it literally can be translated to, to, prepare, to prepare or to develop. And so the re- God was saying, is, hey, listen, I'm going to give you something to do. And that something is an opportunity to worship me. That you don't have to wait for a service or of a day of the week to roll around to experience worship. Matter of fact, I don't want you to look at it at work. I want you to look at it as worship. And I want you to do whatever you do for the glory of God and to bless the people around. And so and so God has not changed his mind on that. That when God gave you your job and God provided for you a place to work and a job to work at, then listen, God didn't just give you a place to get a paycheck. God gave you an opportunity to worship and to bless the people around you. And God has not changed his mind. And for some of you, the problem is this. The problem is not that you have a lousy job or you work for a lousy boss. The problem is you don't have a clue of what you're doing Monday through Friday or why you're doing it or who you're doing it for. And so if you bought that myth and you just said, y'all, if I just had the perfect boss. You know, you know if I just worked at the church. And all the staff said nothing. They said nothing. I deserve that. Like if I just if I just got a different boss or. If, that, if I just get that one job, then, then, then I would worship. Can I just tell you something? That when you do something as a response to, to God doing something on your behalf, that's not worship where I'm giving God myself. That's trading. 
God, you do this and I'll respond in a certain way. That's trading. That's not worship at all. And so when Scripture talks about, listen, from the very beginning, from the very first hire, from the very first HR interview, God said, hey, listen, I'm giving you a job. But it's not just a job. It's not a career. Listen, it's an opportunity to worship. And so I want you to understand, I want you to leave this morning understanding that it's foundational. Everything else we'll talk about uh, this morning, that work is worship. Would you just say that with me? Work is worship. One more time. Work is worship. And that's nothing to do with the sign on the door or your, your title in your office or who works across from you or who you report to. Those, all those things are irregardless that work is worship. And so whether you work in an office, whether you work in a factory, uh, whether you work at home with a bunch of little sinners clinging to your neck and barging in on the bathroom. Work is Worship. Work is worship. So, so that's the theology from the very beginning. Genesis chapter two, very first job. God said it's worship. So, so practically speaking, what difference does it make? See, here's a knock on theology. Everybody says, hey, theology is neat, but it's not real practical. Listen, there's some practical overflow when you build that foundation that work is worship. So let me tell you just two. There are lots of let me tell you just two practical overflows when I live uh, out of a sense and of a belief and a conviction that work is worship. And it was from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Here are two practical things that should make a difference when you get up and go to work tomorrow at home or, or uh, outside the house, whatever you, what God calls you to do. So the overflow of a work is worship mindset is first and foremost this. It is a commitment to excellence. That when I realize that I'm working for worship and I'm working to honor God, the natural overflow of that is a commitment to excellence. Colossians 3.23, not a new verse, but a verse we need to be reminded of and apply it to our vocation, is whatever you do, whatever you do, you own a business, you stay at home, you, you take, you know, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't, don't, listen, if you're in a bad job situation, don't grab a hold of this verse and go in tomorrow and tell your boss that, you know what, I'm not working for you anymore. Because you actually may not be working for me anymore if you do that. But in your heart, you're resolved to say, listen, they're my employer, and so I've got to honor them, Ephesians chapter 6 and those things. But at the end of the day, I'm not really working for them in an eternal perspective. I'm working for the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, listen, my reward, when I have that mindset, my reward is not that bonus or that paycheck or that employee of the year plan. Listen, my reward is an eternal blessing from God. That may be financial, but it may not be financial. What's he saying, Colossians 3? He says, you, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, he doesn't define that totally. But let me just tell you, whatever it is, whatever it is, when he bestows on you, you're not going to get it and go, is that it? Like, as I'm serving the Lord, and I got this, you know, participation ribbon, right? Like, I would rather have that bonus or that extra week off or that, you know, plaque or the case is. And so there's a commitment to excellence. Now, when I understand that, that work is worship. Here's what I want you to understand. This would be a little bit convicting, but, but I think it's a good conviction kind of a thing. That basically, when you go into your job, and if you're not viewing work as worship, and so the overflow of that is a commitment to excellence, basically it's the equivalent of coming in here on a Sunday morning and just sitting out in your seat and saying, God, I'm going to give you 40%. God, I'm going to give you half my heart this morning in worship. God, I'm going to sing when you're watching. That's the same thing. You think, well, I would never come in here and do that. Can I just tell you, if you do that in here, it, imagine doing it one day a week in here. When you do it five days a week or six days a week or seven days, whatever, you have to work. Listen, it's the exact same thing as coming down, sitting in a service saying, God, I'm going to pour out half my heart today only when you're watching. 
Because when I have a work is worship mentality, guess what? There is a commitment to excellence. Now, some of you may not be listening. Let me speak just, I don't do this a lot. Let me just speak specifically to students and parents of students. So if you're here this morning, you're a student, you're in school or high school or college or trade school, what are the cases? You say, well, I don't have a job, but that's good to know. It's good information. I want to write that down. So I get, listen, your job, your job if you're a student is to use whatever gifts and intellect and abilities and opportunities God has to do the very best you can in school. Why? Because that is your work. And so you're working for good grades or a scholarship or a principal role or honor roll award or a power back. Listen, you're doing that to the best of your ability. Why? Because it's worship. You're doing it for the glory of God. Parents, you're welcome. Now, parents, hear me this morning. Do not make an idol. Of good grades. And we have appropriately beat the drum against the uh, encroachment of sports, youth sports in every facet of our culture. Every parent I talk to says the same thing. I wish it wasn't so much, but every parent says, but I end up doing it anyway. We didn't play so much practice, but I ended up doing it anyway. And so we beat that drum. And I listen, I don't apologize for that. There needs to be a little tension there. But can I just say the thing we've taught you is that some parents do the same. They make an idol out of good grades. Parents, let me just speak in your life this morning a little bit. Now, I'm still struggling as a parent, still trying to figure this thing out. Listen, if your child gets straight A's and gets scholarships and gets on every Prince Award, Honor Roll Award, but they grow up and they don't love Jesus Christ with their whole heart, that's not a win as a parent. That's not a win as a parent. And if your child does the best of their abilities because they understand that this is my job and work is worship and I'm doing the best I can at school, not for my parents' approval, not for the principal's approval, but because I want to honor God with my life and the best they can do is to see or be, guess what? That's worship and it honors God. And if it honors God, you should be satisfied with it. Because if not, your standards are higher than God's. Students, you're welcome. Commitment to excellence. Here's the second thing that when I view work as worship and I view that foundation that from the very beginning it was so. Here's the second natural overflow is that there is a commitment to integrity. There is a commitment to integrity. Proverbs 11, 11, 18 says the wicked man earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. You know, I've had people ask me over the years, uh, Pastor, how much money is too much and how much, you know, if I'm making this and should I feel guilty, those kinds of things. Listen, let me just give you some parameters on that kind of a thing. Uh, listen, if you're if you're not forfeiting your integrity in the process and you're not sacrificing your family on the altar, then God places no limits on that. And I've always told people, listen, as long as you're honoring the Lord and honoring your family, you should make as much as you can. Why? So you can bless other people and further the gospel. Now, listen, that's over and over. Listen, Moses is a scripture that people use. God used incredibly influential, wealthy people, but they recognize that was but a tool to worship. But what happens is this, is that when we make that not a vehicle to worship, we end up, uh, there's a temptation to be deceitful, to lack integrity so that we can profit instead of honoring the Lord uh, as work as worship. Read about an elderly woman who was exasperated. She hired a plumber and he came to her house and charged her $65. He just did 10 minutes of work. And she said, why are you charging me $65? And he said, well, we charge $65 an hour. And she said, well, you're, you were here for 10 minutes. And he said, well, there's an hour minimum. And she said, okay. So she came back with a rake and for the next 50 minutes, she raked leaves in her front yard until she got all of her money, right? So, so, so what, is, what is the idea that when we talk about integrity and earning and, and honesty and all those kinds of things, uh, listen, at the end of the day, you, you got to recognize this, that your testimony, public testimony is far more valuable than any dollar you can earn. 
Scripture says that over and over. Proverbs 22.1 A good name is more desirable than great riches to be esteemed better than silver or gold. 1 Peter 2.12 Listen, live such good lives among the pagans. Now, let's make this really practical. How many of you work with some pagans? Anybody got some, some first just lift up both hands? Yes, Lord. Yes, right? So, so you're working in that pagan environment, right? So, so God has to work for you. First Peter 2.12 Live such good lives among the pagans. Don't seclude yourself among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Listen, one of the ways that happens is you work with integrity. And when they ask you why, like, well, you know, I, I don't know why you're doing that. You're, you're, you're brown nosing or you're just trying to get a promotion. Or you're just trying to make the rest of us look bad. Listen, you can say with integrity, no, I'm just living my life to honor God. And this is one of the ways that happens at work. Proverbs 11.1, 1, talk about integrity. A false balance or scale is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And so God clearly, listen, God doesn't have a kind word for a lazy person anywhere in Scripture. Do you understand that? Matter of fact, when he speaks to a lazy person, Proverbs chapter 6 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard, and consider her ways. All right? So God has said, but listen, at the end of the day, you've got to realize that if my ambition causes me to forfeit my testimony, causes me to uh, forfeit my integrity, at the end of the day, I've lost perspective that work is worship. Work is worship. And so how do we not let work become an idol that's so common in men's lives? Uh, when we look at Scripture, and so uh, that's one of the ways. But here's, let me just add one more with just a little explanation for the uh, sake of time this morning. Here's the second thing I want you to understand as it relates to work. Is that work is a vehicle uh, to bless others. Work is a vehicle to bless others. Work is worship. So I honor God with my efforts. And secondly, uh, we, we see in Scripture that work is a vehicle to bless others. And this principle means you think more uh, than personal profit as your bottom line. Like at the end of the day, you're saying, hey, listen, don't feel guilty about earning wage. Don't feel guilty about earning good wage. Don't feel guilty. But at the end of the day, that profit is not the bottom line. The profit is how am I using that to bless other people is the bottom line. Nothing more evangelistic than to work for a boss who truly sees your work as his mission field. I read a story this week about a very experience like that. It was an overflow. The person said of 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And 2 Corinthians 8 9 is, a, is an incredible passage about what Jesus did for us uh, in the gospel. Uh, and basically, the, the idea is here is that when I'm a boss or an employer, I'm doing this, listen, then what I'm doing is simply this. I'm leveraging my position of strength to bless other people. You think, well, why in the world? You've obviously not read any business books, Pastor. Why in the world would I leverage my strength to bless other people? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. That's the gospel. He said, where do you get that from? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Let me paraphrase that. He leveraged his position of strength to bless other people. That's exactly what God is calling you to do. You know, in preparing for this message, I try to lead and read and listen to as many sources as I can and uh, other guys have taught, just all uh, commentaries, all those things. And so this week I was reading and I came across the story of an executive doing that exact very thing. It was a young college graduate who landed a job on Madison Avenue in one of the most uh, prestigious advertising firms in the world. It was cutthroat. And so she was just thrilled to get this job right out of college. But shortly after, her inexperience caught up with her and she made a mistake that cost the company almost $25,000. And she'd just been there less than a month. 
And so she recognized that the Madison Avenue was a cutthroat place. And so she just knew that by the end of the day, she was going to be fired. However, her boss went before the board of directors and convinced them to allow the blame for her mistake to fall on him instead. And so when she heard this, she came to him with tears in her eyes. She said, why in the world did you do that? And he said, well, he answered and said, sharing, he said, Jesus did a very similar thing for me. He stepped in the way of the wrath that I deserved. And because of the great grace that Jesus has shown me, I want to display similar mercy to others when I can. Folks, that is what we mean when we talk about living the gospel. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, doing for others what Jesus did for you, leveraging your position of strength to bless others. And so, so here is the $64 million question. So Scripture is so clear that work is worship. And from the very beginning, that's exactly what it was. Hebrews chapter, or Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. So we know from Scripture's clear, we all know stories of people who had regrets at the end of their lives that they exchanged family for work and they would never do it again if they go back, but they can't. And so the question is, if the Bible speaks to it clearly and experience rings out, we all know examples, why do we still see people getting those things mixed up? Why do we see people still using work not as a vehicle to worship, but work as the thing that I worship? Why do we do that? And particularly, why do men do that? Let me just offer this morning quickly three suggestions as to why. And they're just suggestions of my own personal experience when I'm and dealing with people. So let me just offer you three suggestions this morning as to why that happens, even though we know better. Uh, number one is this. There's an identity crisis. There's an identity crisis that we think our work defines us. Well, hey, I'm so-and-so. Well, hey, I'm so-and-so. What's the first question we ask? What do you do? I'm an educator. I'm an engineer. I'm a, you know, fill in the blank, whatever the case is. And men particularly struggle with that. We think that our work uh, defines us. There was an interesting study in the world of sociology several uh, years ago uh, commenting on, on culture and how men and women are different as it relates to this particular issue of an identity crisis uh, through work. And so uh, the, the, the survey was simply this. They surveyed and said, what are your top fears? And so they began to list out all these top fears. And then obviously you can imagine between men and women, there were uh, some very similar fears. Everyone was afraid of something happening to their child and everything. There's just, you know, some common things in there. However, the, the, the true distinction of the survey where there were some top fears held by women that didn't show up in any of the top fears held by men and vice versa. And so one of the things that showed up on every woman's list near the top of their top fears was a loss of family stability. Every woman surveyed listed that as one of their top things. That didn't show up on a single man's top, top list of his fears. But on every man's top list, somewhere in his top three or four, was loss of job. That didn't show up on a single woman's list. And the sociologist wisely concluded, he said, a woman would rather live under a bridge with all of her family than in a mansion by herself. And so you've ever wondered, are women really smarter? The answer is yes. One of the reasons men struggle with this identity crisis is men often get caught up in letting their professional performance dictate their identity. And so one of the things they do is they end up letting their net worth determine their self-worth. And can I tell you this? You may be an educator and you may be an engineer and you may be a business owner and you may be an entrepreneur and you may be feeling like you may be a stay-at-home mom and all saying, listen, that is not what you are. That is what you do to worship God. Who you are is when you belong to Jesus Christ. It's his child, his son, his heir, all those things we've described in, in those passages. 
And what you do is nothing but a vehicle to worship God and bless others. It's not who you are when you belong to Jesus. You're a son of God. So the problem with men, sometimes there's an identity crisis uh, among men. Oftentimes among men, uh, we, we sometimes, or just in culture in general, our culture, uh, we struggle with materialism. Like, I know that I shouldn't sacrifice my, my time with my family or those key relationships. Uh, but what happens is I just want these things that, that grips my heart. We call that lust when I want something more than what God wants for me. And so that just grips my heart. And so I'm going to overwork myself to obtain or not just to obtain, but to maintain these things. And in doing so, I have all these things, but, but no time to enjoy it with the people I love the most. And so there's that bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Listen, let me tell you from a biblical perspective how that should read. He who dies with the most toys is still dead. Right. And they can't go back and do anything different. Scripture says this Ecclesiastes 4, 8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his work. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling? He said. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? For this too is meaningless, a miserable business. What good is all the possession of the world? There's no time to build relationships with the people you love. And so the third reason, I think, is this suggestion is this, is a low view of God's sovereignty. Listen, again, God is a, not a kind word at all for laziness. Hear me this morning. Not a kind word in the scripture for laziness or idleness. But at the end of the day, I should work in such a way that honors God because I believe that work is worship. So I have a commitment to excellence and a commitment to integrity. But at the end of the day, when it's time to go home and not cheat my family instead of my, my job, at the end of the day, I've got to leave the results of my promotion and my income and all those things in God's sovereign hands. You see, I don't know that the Bible really teaches that. Psalm 75. For promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and sets up another. First Samuel chapter 2. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. So what does that mean? You work in such a way that honors God. You work in such a way that your work of worship. And when it's time to go home, don't you dare cheat your family. You leave those results in God's hands and he'll make provision for you when you honor him. So here, here's a word of warning. How do I know when I'm working too much? There's, there's lots of ways. This week I was reading uh, Bob Russell had a, a quote about this. And Bob Russell uh, pastored the third largest church in America. 20,000 people were attending every weekend. He's coming here to preach in a couple weeks for our super summer. And so, so Bob Russell had this, this word. He says ambition is fine. It, it's, it's to be lauded in the scriptures. But it has to be restricted by a love for family. Proverbs 15.27 says a greedy man brings trouble to his family. A greedy man brings trouble to his family. And then he tells this story. In USA Today several years ago carried a story explaining why Former Labor Secretary Robert Rice quit what he called the best job I ever had. Here's what he said. He said, one evening I phoned home to tell the boys I wouldn't make it back in time to say goodnight. I'd already missed five bedtimes in a row. Sam, the younger of the two, said, that's okay. But he asked me to wake him up when I got home. And Rice says, I explained I'd be back so late that he would, would have gone to sleep before. And it's probably better if I just waited until the morning. But he insisted, and I asked why. And he said, Daddy... I just want to know that you're here. I just want to know that you're home. And Rice said, to this day, I can't explain what happened at that very moment. Yet suddenly I knew I had to quit my job. Proverbs 23, 4 says, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to control yourself. Child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. 
And he learned to walk while I was away. He was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he said, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know, I'm going to be like you. The cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When are you coming home? I don't know when, but we'll get together then. We'll have a good time then. There will come a day. There will come a day in your life when you would trade everything you have obtained and achieved for one more minute with the people you love. That day will come. We all know it to be true, but yet we live our lives as if it were not. Listen, I've preached too many funerals. I know it's true. Don't waste your life pursuing titles and toys at the expense of your family, Dad. Proverbs 27 once says, don't brag about tomorrow because you don't know what a day brings forth. And so I challenge you with everything in me this morning to make time for things that matter the most because those things aren't things at all. It's the people God has placed in your life. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?